I've been in the labor movement 50 years, and I can tell you, I've never been more optimistic than I am sitting here right now talking to you. Corporations are too strong, and workers are too weak, and the PRO Act would help rebalance that so that we can get a fair share of the wealth that we produce. We're really blessed that we had somebody like Rich Trumka who, in the face of all of that, always had the confidence, always had the militancy, always was prepared to be on the front line in the fight. And I think that that is an important part of his legacy that uh, it's just appropriate to, to take note of in, in this solemn moment. Welcome to a special edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. AFL-CIO President Rich Trumka died last Thursday. A heart attack did what no boss could. Still the voice of a relentless champion of workers' rights. President Biden said Trumka was more than the head of the AFL-CIO. He was a very close personal friend. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer mourned Trumka in an emotional speech on the Senate floor saying the country has lost a fierce warrior at a time when we needed him most. Heartbroken tributes poured in from all corners of the labor movement, not only here in the United States, but around the world. On today's show, we're highlighting a few of the network shows that featured Rich Trumka. On the State of the Union's podcast from an episode released in late November 2018, Trumpka talks about the midterm elections and a lot more, including an incredibly touching and revealing story about one of his first exposures to racism as a young boy. Then, on the America's Workforce Radio Labor Day show from last year, Trumpka tackles a raft of issues from the effect of the pandemic on workers to the PRO Act, worker safety, the National Labor Relations Board, and a whole lot more. Finally, on Your Rights at Work, which we broadcast last Thursday, just an hour after learning about Trumpka's death, I talked with labor historian Joe McCartan about Trumpka's life and his legacy. As you'll hear from Joe, Richard Trumpka loved history, and labor history especially. So, Brother Trumpka, on today's Labor History in Two... The year was 1890. That was the day that one of the heroines of the U.S. labor movement, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, was born in Concord, New Hampshire. I'm sure that more of the 125 shows that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network will be reacting to the passing of a man one labor leader called a Lion of Labor. You can check them all out at laborradionetwork.org. This is Chris Garlock for the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. This is State of the Unions. We're very proud and honored to be joined by our fearless leader, President Rich Trumka. President Trumka, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You bet. So why don't you first talk about the election that just happened, your reaction to it, and, and what you think it means for working people? Well, I, I think we made some significant progress yesterday. I think uh, we knocked on more doors. Uh, we have sent more flyers out. We made more phone calls. We did different things in different ways. We had the largest program, member-to-member program we've ever had in our history. And I think it showed. Because in many races, we were the difference between winning and losing. In fact, we resurrected some of the candidates that everybody had all but given up on. That doesn't mean that we're out of the woods. Because what we've done is set the table and created a new tool. We'll use those tools to get more voice and a louder voice in the halls of power so that workers get a better deal. And we create an economy that works for all of them. We've been talking a lot about messages, especially messages that resonated with union members and how important the issues were. We just finished having a conversation with Congressman Connor Lamb, big smiles all around the table Mm -hmm. here, who I believe originally ran in your congressional district before it was no longer your congressional district and then just finished running again. When you talk about issues, when when you combine that with a candidate now congressman like Connor Lamb, who wasn't afraid to use the word union. 
who wasn't afraid to embrace the movement. How do you put that in context for like what future candidates need to be doing as well, they it, run? It, it's the formula for success. That's right. When you have a candidate who who's all but embarrassed to say collective bargaining or supporting collective bargaining, how can you expect our members to make the go the extra mile to take time away from their family to leaflet? the phone bank or the doorknob, when what they're getting is somebody who's going to be at best tepid. They want somebody who's going to represent them and be a warrior. Connor Lamb is a warrior for working people. He's not ashamed of it. He tells everybody. He believes in unions, collective bargaining, and the power of unions to create a middle class. He believes that. More candidates that we get that way, the better off we are. So if you get that, you get more energy. You get more people that'll come out and give you the extra hour, the extra phone call, the extra door knock, the extra leaflet to be able to get the votes that we need. And then come election day, they really have something to vote for as opposed to just somebody to vote against. Early this year, you talked about when you, you would know unions are on the rise. And a couple of things you said, you said when more union members fill the halls of power, and when working people realize our own value, that's when you'll know unions are on the rise. After this election and taking stock of the whole year, how do you feel about the union movement right now? I feel exceptionally good about it. I'm very, very bullish and optimistic about the labor movement. First of all, we organized 262,000 new members last year. Mm-hmm. We had 75% of them were under the age of 35. That means young people are coming to the labor movement understanding that it is their ticket to a better life and, and a better economy. We took on a number of races from Alabama to Virginia, and we won all those races. Conrad Lamb was a, another one of those special elections that we took on. We've been collectively bargaining. We've been organizing more people. We put our members in the halls of power. They'll be our voice when we're there and not there. You won't have to lobby them. They will be speaking on our behalf when no one else is around. When they're having little conversations with the leadership in the House or the Senate in twos or threes, we're going to be represented in a way that we haven't been represented for for a long while. So I'm optimistic about that. I think all the signs are there in every form whether it's Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, the teachers movement, young workers coming together to stop violence. All of those are collective action where people are saying, the only way we're going to get this done is if we stand, lock arms with the people standing next to us. And when they do that, nothing can stop us. So me, I've been in the labor movement 50 years. And I can tell you, I've never been more optimistic than I am sitting here right now talking to you. Following up on that, 50 years. Wow. You've been 50 <laughs> years. You're a member of the United Mine Workers. You've been in the mines. You've been a local leader. You've been a national leader. Talk about this moment that we're in now. We've got a new Congress. We made an important first step. What do working people need to do? moving forward? How do we keep this momentum going? I think they need to keep talking and letting their representatives know exactly what we expect from them. We don't just need a bunch of fighting back and forth and finger pointing. We want to be able to have our wages raised. We want to have affordable health care for everybody in the country. We want secure pensions. We want a great educational system and the ability of our kids to go to school. Afterwards, have the opportunity, no matter who you love, where you worship, what you look like, where you came from, to be able to have the opportunity to make a decent living and get ahead based on your efforts, not what you look like or any other of the isms that are out there. And having the more that they say that publicly, and the more they live that, they're going to have to come our way. Because you're starting to see it now. Think about where trade was five years ago. Mm-hmm. Back then, you were either for free trade that hurt every worker in this country, and the country itself, or you were a Neanderthal. False if choice. You, if you, of mm-hmm. course, there was, they, there was no choice. We changed that. NAFTA now, they're not talking about getting a new NAFTA. They're talking about fixing a broken NAFTA. Mm. We did that. Workers did that by talking, sticking together, and demanding better. So if we demand an economy that works for everyone, not just the people at the top, 
because they're going to do great for themselves no matter what happens. But if we get an economy that works for everybody and we demand that, we'll get it. We'll have a better country. We'll have a stronger country. It will grow. We will create demand as wages rise. We'll create more demand and we'll have a country that is the envy of the world again. Amen. You know, one of the things just anecdotally that Tim and I have talked about a lot on this podcast is the diversity of our movement, is how the leadership here at the AFL-CIO under your direction has brought in young people, has given young people like me and Tim opportunities to be leaders. And just with what you just said, I I hope people start to understand why we are where we are, because it's an honor to work in this movement and to, to work with you truly. And you just said it all. You know, Julie, uh, I got elected president of my workers when I was 33 years old. I was young, young. You were young. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I got an opportunity. My membership said, give them a chance. Mm-hmm. And then they supported me. And I've taken that to heart ever since. Mm-hmm. I've never looked at a person's age and said, they're too young. I look at their ability and say, let's give them a chance. And let's help them. Let's mentor them. Mm-hmm. And I don't care where you come from where your background is, where your daddy or mommy grew up, where you did, what you look like, who you love or who you worship, you ought to have the same opportunities. And when we can emphasize that to our members and our members start demanding it and speaking up against it when they see obstacles, impediments, or attempts to prevent us from getting there, I think we all win. I think we have a better country. Amen. The country's really divided today. And the election sort of reinforced that. What role do you see for the labor movement in uniting the country? You know, when it came to every one of the isms, the labor movement has to be at tip of the spear, not in the middle of the spear. Because if you're going to break racism, the labor movement has to be at the point of that spear. Any of the isms that's out there, we have to be at the tip of it. The same thing with dividing people. We live with solidarity. We live because we come together. And if the country would look at us and the example that we set with our solidarity, they'd know that you can't stand divided. A nation divided simply won't stand very long. And the polarization that we're seeing, unfortunately, is being fed by by politicians for their own benefit. Some, they want to create fear. They want to create havoc so that you have to look to them. Only I have the answer. And so they create that fear and try to use it to their advantage. I think that's totally unacceptable, and it's totally un-American, if you will. Our country's strongest when we stand together. Our labor movement is strongest when we stand together. And so it's going to take us, I think, being willing to, to take a little bit of a risk and extend a hand, because somebody's got to do it. And everybody's afraid to do it. I think we must be the, the ones because no one else will. What would be the first step in doing that, you think? I think actually starting to talk to people. Talk to people you disagree with. Talk to people that look a little different than you. Talk to people with people, not at them. Talk with people uh, that worship different than you, that look different, that love different than you do. All of those things. So did you understand that we have so much more in common than we have that divides us. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't let the few things that we disagree on separate us as a nation. You had one of these pivotal moments in 2008 when Barack Obama was running for president. And amongst our labor movement, our members weren't necessarily there in many places around the country. And it was because of his race. And it was because of the rumors that were out there at the time penetrating. He didn't have a birth certificate. Yeah. He was Muslim, all of that. He wear a flag on his Eggs, flag All of that. All the nonsense. And you went, you went home and you gave a speech about it. That went viral. There's not a single good reason for any worker, especially any union member, to vote against Barack Obama. And there's only one really really bad reason to vote against Barack Obama. And that's because he's not white. You want to talk about what led you to to deciding that you needed to do that? Because you went pretty deep and you went personal there. 
Yeah, probably to to really understand that, I probably need to go back and talk to you a little bit about the first time I actually witnessed racism. Mm. My best buddy when I was growing up was a African American kid that lived a couple doors down from me. And my dad took us uh, to this little park where you had know, swimming and things like that. And when you pulled into the uh, parking lot, there was a booth there. And you would have to pay for the number of people in the car. So Tom and I were in the back seat and we we're roughhousing around. Mm-hmm. And my dad stops at the booth and the guy looks in and says, you know that boy can't swim here, pointing to, to Tom. And my dad never raises his voice. He says, you better take out for him because that boy's going to swim here. Mm. And the guy raises his voice a little more. He said, you know that boy can't swim here. My dad looks at him, doesn't raise his voice, and says, you better take out because that boy's going to swim here. Now, I don't know if he took out or not, paid for him or not, Mm. but I know we went in, changed our clothes, the three of us, Tom and I, the pool was really crowded. Mm-hmm. And Tom and I jumped in the water, and there was this, like, 10-foot circle around us where nobody would come close. So we had sort of this crowded pool to ourselves. <laughs> wow. uh, and we swam for a while, and my dad was in water with us, and then we went home. And after after we laid him out, I, I said to my dad, Dad, why, why did that guy like Tommy? And my dad explained racism to me for the first time because mm-hmm. I never – Never really saw it before that, never yeah. really witnessed it. But it made a, a, a tremendous impression on me. And my dad, he just detested any kind of discrimination. It didn't matter what it was. It was because you had long hair, the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. He just wouldn't tolerate it. And he instilled that in me. So when, when I saw Barack Obama starting to run, I said, here's a, here's a good man, you know, but I saw our, our, our middle-level leadership were afraid. They were afraid to take a chance and say, yeah, let's support this guy. Because they didn't know how their membership was going to react. And so I thought well, they needed space. They needed us, the level leadership, mm-hmm. to push them. And so the, the speech that I made, and I don't know if you recall this, it was to the steelworker. But I said to them, if you're not voting for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman— you're wrong. And if you're not voting for Barack Obama because of the color of his skin, you're equally wrong. And went on to talk about the evils of racism and how they've used it for decades to try to divide us and concluded with the statement that this man is willing to stand and fight with us and protect our way of life and our jobs and our values, and you won't stand with him because of the color of his skin. It did go viral, but more importantly, it created space yeah. for our middle-level leadership mm-hmm. to go out and do what was the right thing. Mm-hmm. They ultimately did. We got uh, Barack Obama elected, and we really, uh, right. the labor movement did a great job in, in delivering for him. I was proud of the labor movement because mm-hmm. we were now back at the tip of the spear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We weren't in the middle of the spear. We were at the tip of the spear saying, we're better than this. We're better mm-hmm. as a country. We're better as human beings. And, and we showed it. Seems like that lesson is important today as we go forward into 2019. What do you look at as success for the labor movement? You laid it out in 2018. We're starting to see that percolation, that uprising of workers. 20,000 workers walked out at Google last week, of all places. Yeah, that was incredible. <laughs> so. What do you think? How do you build on this? What? How do you build on what's going on in 2018? How do you make 2019 another year of, of the comeback? Keep doing the same thing we're doing, only more of it, more organizing. Uh, bring in a union. Look, uh, MIT just did a study. Uh, that study said that half of the people that are non-union right now would vote for a union today if given the chance. That means there's 60 million workers out there right now that want to be in a union. And they're going to get intimidated when they try because employers are going to employ high-priced union busters. But they're not going to dissuade us from having a voice on the job and getting a fair shake on the job. 
So it, it's more of that, running more candidates, becoming more issue-oriented, talking to our members and listening to our members, and then acting on our members' wants, needs, and desires. When we get those, we keep pushing those issues and fighting for them. Workers understand who is legit, who who walks the walk and not just those who talk the talk. And we walk the walk. And we're going to do more of it, and it's going to get stronger and faster and build, and more people are going to become part of us. And you'll see things start to change. And you'll see the economy again start to evolve into an economy that works for everyone. Have you ever thought about running for public office yourself? <laughs> no. Uh, I was uh, I was offered a, an appointed job a number of years ago and declined. You know, look, I, I grew up in a, in a poor family that was dirt poor. And when we went anywhere, if I asked for a glass of water, when I got home, my dad let me have it. Mm. My dad always said, you never ask anybody for anything because they may not have it and you embarrass them if they don't. So ingrained in me is I don't like to ask for stuff. So I couldn't spend <laughs> half of every day asking people for money. Uh-huh. I mean, I just couldn't stomach it. I really, I really couldn't. Yeah. And so uh, I never thought about that. And besides, I have the job that I love. Mm-hmm. I've been blessed. I was president of mine workers, and I loved being president of mine workers. Mm-hmm. And now I'm president of the FLCIO. I can't think of a a better job that I could ever have or want. You recently told me your record in elections. I'm 21 and 0. <laughs> 21 and 0. So, yeah, I've I've been blessed. I've been lucky along the way that uh, friends, neighbors, fellow workers have stood with me uh, in the process, and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. You have a wish list for the new Congress. Yeah. Where would you start? Wage increases. Mm-hmm. Help people get better jobs, better wages. Help uh, everybody get health care. Drive the price down. Make sure everybody has access to it. Medicare for all. Helping people with a secure retirement. Protecting those pensions that are in jeopardy right now. Those are the kitchen table economics that they ought to be laser focused on. The more they're focused on those, the better off all of us are going to be, including them. Got any uh, parting words for Scott Walker? yeah i'm tempted to say don't let the door hit you know in the back side on the way out but i won't here's what i'll say to him scott you tried to make a living hurting working people and being a servant of the rich and the powerful Mm -hmm. didn't work out so good for you maybe you should rethink maybe you should start thinking about how you can serve your fellow man and not just the rich people that were donors for you You can start by listening to this podcast. You might learn a little something. There you go. Get some humility. First election you ever voted in. You remember? Bobby Kennedy. It's a good one. Any election day traditions or rituals that you had? No. I get up in the morning and look out, hope it's not raining. That's right. It's hope it's, it's not cold. <laughs> it was hope raining yesterday. Not, hope it's not storming <laughs> yeah. and saying, I uh, let it sunshine and be mild today so that the people that they're going to try to force off those lines mm-hmm. stay on those okay. lines. I mean, I was heartbroken yesterday when I saw people show up at the polling place and be told such nonsense as mm-hmm. uh, the landlord foreclosed on the polling place today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we forgot to bring the machines in today. And when you happen to look at those people, it's just a coincidence, I'm sure. But they happen to be people of color mm. 99% of the time. And I just find it uh, extremely ironic and, and disheartening. Uh, and we have to do more about that as Americans. So the traditions are you just afterwards I go to the polls mm. and vote. And then I watch everything on television or as we did last night here at the War Room uh, to see what's coming in and see where we can make more headway and then start to analyze. We we really have been blessed with great people and a great staff. And uh, I just want to say thanks to all of them. Everybody who made a phone call, knocked the door, passed out a leaflet, talked to somebody on behalf of one another, and all of you that voted, let me say thanks. That's a civic obligation as well as a right and a privilege. And I just want to say thanks for exercising that the country's better off. The more people that vote, 
the better off the country is. President Richard Trumka, it's an honor to follow your lead. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This has been State of the Unions. Until next time, keep up to date on all things labor by following us on Twitter at AFL-CIO. Hey, here it is, Labor Day, and we got the guy, Rich Trumka. Welcome back to America's Workforce. Thanks, Flash. Thanks for having me back, and happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to you. You've been busy, busy, busy. I am so happy that you carved out some time, a very special day for all workers, union and non-union. We always say if it wasn't for the union, you wouldn't have an eight-hour day. You wouldn't have weekends. You wouldn't have paid vacations. You wouldn't have sick leave. We can go on and on and on. It's it's the union difference. I have to start out asking you, how are you doing? I, I know you're busy. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh the message from Richard Trumka. Unions, I know, are very, very in favor, in vogue today. What are you feeling out there, Rich? Uh, I, I've never been more confident or optimistic, Flash. I really haven't. You're seeing more collective action going on out there. Our, our approval ratings, the union approval ratings, are the highest they've been in over 50 years. More people want to join the union than ever before. Over 60 million people say they join a union today if they were given the chance. So I'm optimistic. You have young people that are getting involved. You have seniors that are getting involved. And you have people in between that are getting involved, men, women, people of color, and everybody else saying, we want and we need a voice on the job. Give us a union. So I tell you, I haven't been this excited and optimistic in a lot of years. So, Rich, talk to me about the pandemic here. Has has COVID-19 been a game changer in what you just said here on the air? Is that is that what's happening right now? Well, I, I think the pandemic's shown a couple of things. First of all, it's demonstrated what we always knew, uh, that there's systemic racism in the system because people of color are getting hit harder uh, by the, the pandemic than anybody else. It also shows that workers are considered expendable. Uh, they call us uh, heroes. They call us essential workers, and yet they order us back to work. Like Trump ordered people back to work uh, in a meatpacking plant and didn't give them any PPE, any personal protective equipment, and so thousands of them got infected. Uh, we have an OSHA right now, uh, Flash, that is sort of non-existent. It's A-W-O-L, and he, Trump has systematically defunded uh, OSHA to where it's its weakest point it's ever been in its history. Fewer inspectors right now than we've ever had in our history, and so it's paid a price on us. And yet every day, workers get up and go do the work that keeps the country going, keeps the country safe, takes care of the people that get sick, educating our kids, doing everything that we always do in the best way that we know how to do it, despite the obstacles that have been put in the place of working people. Yeah, I've noticed a number of states have picked up the ball and run on OSHA. Virginia, for one, which is a right-to-work state. We've talked about that on the show. We had uh, a guy from Michigan, Sean Egan, just on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer over there put uh, a labor guy, a guy he was from the trades, in, uh, in enfor- is to uh, enforce worker safety over in the state of Michigan. Is that what needs to be done now because of – the uh, the weakening of OSHA nationally? What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. It means that uh, our unions are, are all the more important now because we protect people's health and safety on the job, and we need those state OSHAs out there that can actually step up to the job. And who better than somebody who actually carries the tools and knows what goes on on those jobs? Right now, Flash, OSHA has enough inspectors to inspect every workplace once every 165 years. Uh, and you can see that it is a cadaver. Uh, it's not doing what it's needed to do. We asked them to issue uh, a, an emergency pandemic standard to protect workers, uh, essential workers that, that have to be on the job. A standard was in place under Obama, and this administration abandoned it. Uh, they refused to do anything to give us the standard. They say that uh, voluntary uh, recommendations are, are adequate uh, to take care of it. And yet those voluntary recommendations that they come by with uh, are put aside and workers get mm. sick and workers die uh, because this OSHA won't do anything to protect us. Well, Rich, you took them to court on that. And, and I guess one of the courts ruled against you. Is there any other recourse right now uh, as far as protecting well, we have, workers? 
yeah, we appealed it, uh, and we're going forward, and we're still going to continue to do it. The HEROES Act is the best course, so it'll be the quickest course of action for us. The HEROES Act was passed over 104 days ago uh, by the House of Representatives under Nancy Pelosi. Uh, one of the main items of it is that it would force OSHA to issue a temporary emergency standard uh, immediately uh, to protect workers on the job. Uh, and so that's why it's so important to get done, not just because of the financial elements of it, which are very, very important uh, as well, but because of the health and safety elements that are contained in the HEROES Act. And yet uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, instead of passing anything, uh, sends his guys home for a three-week vacation while workers are suffering, uh, workers are getting sick, and workers are dying. And what's happened here, Rich? I mean, you know how Congress works. There used to be a time, and I guess it's part of the political divide today, when, say, somebody comes up with a piece of legislation, and you let, let's reference the Heroes Act. All right, you got the you got the House coming up, you got the Senate in charge of Republicans. They have something different. You would think that the two sides would come together for the common good of the American people, and I understand the the Democrats have have negotiated it down a little bit, but nothing on the other side. Why can't they come somewhere in the middle? What, what, what's your answer to that, Rich? Well, in fact, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer offered to meet them in the middle. You remember right, the, the right. Republicans' bill is a, a little under a trillion. The Democratic bill is a three trillion, which is the right scale for this pandemic and what's happening to the economy. She said, let's meet in the middle of two, and they just walked away. Uh, Meadows... Uh, you know, look, this comes from the from the top down. Uh, the, the president doesn't want to make compromise. The president's only going to do things that he thinks are good for him, not good for the country, not good for workers, not good for others, but good for him. And if he doesn't see a, an immediate advantage for himself, he's not going to do that. And then you have the other side absolutely fighting. You have a fight going on inside the administration. You have uh, Mnuchin. Uh, and, and Meadows fighting over whether to make a deal or not. Mnuchin saying mm -hmm. we ought to figure something out, and Meadows saying, no, we're not going to. We don't have to. And then you got people fighting in the Senate. He, Mitch McConnell can't get his side together to do anything. They're in a total set of a disarray and chaos. And as a result of that, America, the economy suffering. America's workers are suffering. Our schools are suffering. Our kids are suffering. Our health and safety is suffering. And everybody else down the line because they can't get their act together to actually negotiate a, a fair, good compromise that would help the country. Yeah, well, there's one thing that McConnell has done, and that's stacked the courts with conservative judges. Now, that's going to last probably, don't you think, like 20, 30 years into the future? What, what, what do at you think? Least, at least. And the, and the judges that he's appointing have been deemed unqualified by the Bar Association. That's not a Democratic Bar Association or a Republican or an Independent. That's all of them saying these guys are unqualified to be judges, and he doesn't care about their qualification to be judges. He only cares about their qualification about philosophy and what they yeah. stand for. Yeah. Just yeah, it shouldn't necessarily included in that. It shouldn't be a liberal judge or a conservative judge. We want a fair judge. We want somebody that, to balance both sides and, and, and follow the law, right? Exactly. You want somebody who'll say, here's the facts, here's the law. I'm going to apply them partially and blindly so uh -huh. that it doesn't matter what party you come from. You're going to get equal justice in my courtroom, whether you're a exactly. Democrat, a Republican, a conservative, a liberal, a progressive, anything. When you come into my courtroom, I only see a plaintiff. Or I only see people and I see the case, and I'm going to give you fair justice. And when, that, when people don't feel that's happening, and more and more and more people don't feel that's happening, it, it corrodes the system and actually threatens the system that, that has kept this democracy going for a lot of years. Well, he stacked the courts and certainly changed the National Labor Relations Board. If you don't mind, I want to switch to that because I've seen some rulings here that are scary and outright dangerous to workers, outright dangerous. And, and from what I understand, now, isn't this supposed to be a five-member board, and there's only three on there? They're all conservatives, and in fact, two of them came from union-busting law firms. Rich, what's going on here? Well, you know, look, before the last election, uh, Donald Trump said that 
American workers' wages were too high. And okay. he's done everything in his administration to make sure that wages don't get higher but get lower. And so he appointed union busters uh, to the NLRB. And when the terms of the Democrats run out, McConnell won't bring them up for a vote uh, so that two Democrats can get back on, their, on the board and balance the board. Uh, in, in addition to that, uh, the, they, this NLRB has gone through five rulemaking procedures to weaken the act, even make it less strong than it is now, and it's one of the weakest labor laws in the world. Not, not the United States, the world. Oh, and boy. they've gone through five rulemaking procedures to weaken it even further. No other administration has gone through one more than one rulemaking procedure uh, in a term. Whether it was to strengthen it or weaken it, one. This guy's gone through five. He's cut back on our overtime. He's taken overtime away from uh, a couple of million people. They've cut back on, on the protection about how you can have an election. Uh, and uh, they were even going to shut down the election during the pandemic and say we couldn't have an election during the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. which is precisely what they want uh, all along. And, and remember this. Remember this, uh, Flash. The law of the land says that the government will encourage the process of collective bargaining. We haven't seen uh, an administration recently that's really encouraged the process of collective bargaining. But we're going to get there because Joe Biden has said he's going to pass the PRO Act. Uh, the PRO Act will change the laws, remember? The, the, the laws that were governed by were written in 1940s, and then there was another amendment in the, in the 50s to weaken the law even more. Now, we're living under laws that were made 80 years ago. You've got to admit that the world's changed a significant amount in the last 80 years, but oh, our yeah. laws protecting workers sure haven't. They need to be changed. The PRO Act will do that. It will strengthen uh, workers' rights, and it will try to rebalance uh, the imbalance of power between corporations and workers, because now corporations are too strong and workers are too weak, and the PRO Act would help rebalance that so that we can get a fair share of the wealth that we produce and that we can get a fair share of the increased productivity that comes about by technology and everything else so that the middle class can begin to grow again rather than continue to wither as it has for the last four decades. A public service announcement with guitar. Know your rights. Oh, Number one, you have the right not to be killed. Hi, it's Chris Garlock, and welcome to your rights at work. Workers around the world were shocked and saddened to hear that Richard Trumka, president of the AFL-CIO, passed away this morning at the age of 72. Let's start with our resident labor historian, Joe McCartan. Joe, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. And I'm sorry I had to, to be the bearer of this news for you this morning. I originally asked you to come on to talk about the 40th anniversary of, of PATCO. I have a feeling that we can probably connect these things, but Joe, what are your thoughts? Chris, uh, I was shocked when I got your call a short time ago. I think anybody who knew Rich and worked with him and, and saw him in recent times uh, knew him to be a really vigorous, energetic uh, person. My last encounter with him was just on the telephone, but he sounded just so much in sound health and so much ready for the, the fight that's now being waged to pass the PRO Act in Congress, which was a subject of the call that we had and, and really optimistic he was going to get it done. So I think those of us who, who have known him were just in utter shock today to, to realize he's so suddenly taken from us. He was fiery. He was not afraid to have the word militant applied to, <laughs> uh, as opposed to, say, a, a previous occupant of the office, George Meany. Right. Um, Rich was um, somebody who was comfortable on a picket line. 
He was somebody who was comfortable engaging in civil disobedience, as he did during the Pittston strike, uh, along with um, striking members of his union back in 1988. In fact, it was to, to mark the anniversary of that strike that you and I had a long conversation with him now, not quite three years ago. And yeah, I think Rich was a fiery person. He was also a gentleman and he was also a scholar. Yes, uh, yes. He to this. Um, and this would, I think, surprise a lot of people that he was a great student of history and he loved reading not just labor history, but the history of the Civil War, for example. He read many historical accounts and he was really a student of, of history as You'd like to see from somebody in a, a position of great power and authority as he had that he looked to the past for lessons and guidance for how to navigate in the present. And this reminds me, when I first got the call, actually, it's all, it's all in the PFW family. I got the call from uh, Sister Elise Bryant, and I called Damon Silvers, who's uh, been a co-host of this show and a friend of WPFW's, you know, to confirm this. And, and Damon said, tell Joe that over the last couple of days, Rich was reading about Jack, which does not surprise me in the least, but it, it occurs to me that we need to do maybe a quick little crash course, uh, you know, who Jack Yablonski was, why Rich would have been reading about him, what that says about Rich. So let give us a little background here. That is meaningful, Chris, to learn that, because Jack Yablonski was a rank-and-file reformer in the mine workers union who did the unthinkable in the late 60s. He challenged the incumbent head of the union, Tony Boyle. And he was waging a campaign that I think was very likely to unseat the incumbent. As we later uh, came to learn, Tony Boyle arranged for the murder of John Yablonski, not only of Yablonski himself, but his wife and daughter. And Rich was attracted to the union movement in part as a, a young man in the mines by John Yablonski and his reform movement within the mine workers union. And so that really got him started in a career that would ultimately lead him to the presidency of the United Mine Workers Union himself um, in 1982 as a 33-year-old, the youngest president of that union, one of the youngest presidents of a, of a significant union in the United States. And so he was drawn into this career by this charismatic reformer, Jack Yablonski, and for him to have been reflecting back on Yablonski's legacy in his last days is, is just, I don't know how else to put it, it's almost poetic. When Jack Yablonski um, waged that struggle, he knew that uh, he was putting himself in danger, and he was undeterred by that. And I think it was that kind of thing that attracted Rich. Um, he was a person who showed a lot of moral courage, and he showed this at crucial points in his life and career. I think one is aligning himself with the Oblonsky movement as a young man, uh, then having the temerity to run for the presidency of that union as such a young man, then to sign up with John Sweeney and the new voice ticket to try to do the unthinkable at that point, which was challenged and the incumbent president of the AFL-CIO, first it was Lane Kirkland, but then Lane stepped down and it became Tom Donahue. To challenge an incumbent sitting president uh, of the AFL-CIO with a, an insurgent campaign and to sign up for that. You could have said that in a way Rich could have simply bided his time and that he would have maybe been in line for a high position within the AFL-CIO in any case. But he threw in with what at the very beginning wasn't clear could be a winning effort, and he did it. And then they won that campaign in 1995. Another important point I think about regarding Rich's courage is that in July of 2008, in the midst of that presidential campaign, Barack Obama, as the first black candidate of a major party. Rich came out and in a very courageous way called out the racism that's, that existed in the country and in, indeed even in parts of the labor movement. That's right. Uh, and said, we need to fight against it. And again, a lot of people who were more circumspect or lacked the courage that Rich had would have left that alone. But Rich charged right into the issue and I think showed a great deal of courage and I think can take some credit for how the union movement performed for Obama in 2008. The PRO Act, is, as you mentioned, was something that Rich had really put a lot of his personal energy and organizational charisma on the line, wouldn't you say? 
Absolutely. And my last conversation with him, I have to say I was I was somewhat surprised at his level of certainty that he was going to see this act through. He was going to get this PRO Act passed. And I thought to myself, I don't know how you get it through this Senate. He was determined. And you got to think that the hard fight that he fought for so many years on behalf of working people probably did shorten his life. He, he, he put himself on the line. He was doing that at the age of 72, and he gave his all. And there, there is no, no doubt about that. Ironically, this very day, August 5th, the day on which Rich Trumka died, is also the 40th anniversary of the day that the striking air traffic controllers were fired by Ronald Reagan. And even b- before I got your call today, I was reflecting on this. I, I did a piece marking this for the American Prospect. I was reflecting on the words of a one-time president of Rich's own union, um, United Mine Workers, John L. Lewis, um, who back in the 1930s gave a a speech uh, after the failed Little Steel strike in which many strikers had been shot and killed. And the quote that I remember most from that speech is one I think that really apt today. What, What Lewis said is that labor like Israel, has many sorrows. It's had many losses, in other words. And certainly today is a day that we experience a big and unexpected loss in the loss of Rich Trumka. He was a leader for the times that you might say the post-PATCO years when labor was often fighting a defensive battle, often having to be sometimes engaging even in a strategic retreat because of the forces it faced economically and politically. And it would have been possible for labor to have been led by somebody who was less equipped psychologically for leading in that time. And we're really blessed that we had somebody like Rich Trumka, who, in the face of all of that, always had the confidence, always had the militancy always was prepared to be on the front line in the fight. And I think that is an important part of his legacy that it's just appropriate to to take note of in in this solemn moment. Richard Trumpka, everybody called him Rich, president of the AFL-CIO, died unexpectedly early this morning at the age of 72. You're listening to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock. We'll be doing our show next week on Rich's life, and we'll get a bunch of folks in to, to tell us more about how he touched their lives as the leader of the National Labor Federation. My inbox is full of folks who have been sending in messages and statements uh, about Rich Trumpka. This is from Andy Levin. He was uh, worked for the AFL-CIO for 11 years. He's now the congressman from Michigan's 9th Congressional District. And he said that uh, Rich was in his element with President Biden, the most pro-worker leader our country has had in generations, poised to do whatever it takes to pass the PRO Act and open a new era of worker voice and power across the land. Now that this lion of labor has fallen so unexpectedly, we will redouble our efforts in his honor. And from Dr. Everett Kelly, who heads up the American Federation of Government Employees, said uh, Rich was an inspirational labor leader, a friend to workers everywhere, but he was a special friend to federal and D.C. government workers. From Pride at Work, Rich was an ally to LGBTQ working people as well, speaking loudly and often about the need to pass the Equality Act and other LGBTQ inclusive legislation within the labor movement. He was an advocate for LGBTQ inclusive contracts and reminded union leaders of the need for better inclusion in our ranks. And finally, Liz Schuler, Secretary Treasurer of the AFL-CIO, second in command to Rich Trumpka, who said today, we are not done yet. Rich would never allow it. Now more than ever, we must come together as one federation to carry out the mission Rich devoted his life to. That is how we honor his legacy. That's going to do it for today's edition of Your Rights at Work. Thanks so much to Mike and to Leah for engineering. Thanks for listening. Be sure to support WPFW. We'll talk to you next week. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
this day in labor history, the year was 1890. That was the day that one of the heroines of the U.S. labor movement, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, was born in Concord, New Hampshire. Elizabeth learned her progressive politics at a young age. Her father was a socialist and her mother a feminist. Elizabeth was kicked out of high school for speaking out in favor of socialism. This did not slow her down. She kept speaking and her reputation grew. She became a member of the Industrial Workers of the World. She traveled the country organizing and speaking to workers. From the Minnesota Iron Range to the textile mills of Lawrence, Massachusetts, Elizabeth was on the front lines of the labor struggle. She was arrested for her activity 10 times, but was never sentenced. During World War I, Flynn was arrested and stood trial for speaking out against the war. The experience led her to become one of the founders of the American Civil Liberties Union, an organization dedicated to protecting freedom of speech. In the 1930s, Flynn became a member of the U.S. Communist Party, writing a regular column for the Daily Worker. But despite her personal political ideas, she supported Democratic Party President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1944. During the 1950s, she was caught up in the anti-communist hysteria led by Senator Joe McCarthy. She went to prison for two years for allegedly violating the Smith Act, a law against overthrowing the government. She died while on a visit to Russia in 1964. More than 20,000 people attended her funeral there. A monument to Flynn stands at the Forest Home Cemetery just outside of Chicago, where she is buried alongside the graves of Eugene Dennis, Big Bill Haywood, and the Haymarket Martyrs. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Labor History in 2. That's it for this special edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, focused on AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka, who died Thursday at the age of 72. You can check out the 125 Labor Radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited and produced this week by me, and our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet, and find out more on our website at LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. See you next week.